what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, Seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense-desires, is not born again into this world. like to um, begin uh, just by offering a few uh, reflections and pointers. Um, the beginning of the day, you know, we, we gather together and um, spend uh, 
aim to spend our, our time uh, learning, practicing meditation, uh, reflecting on the the, uh, the Buddhist path. And there's uh, you know, thousand, ten thousand ways that we can do this. Uh, yes, there's there's uh, thousands of ways we can spend a you know, a Sunday uh, in springtime in California. What kinds of things that um, we could be doing? So uh, you know, it's sort of helpful to consider. You know, what are we doing here? What have I come to this place for? Um, how do I want to spend my time? And um, what uh, what's the purpose of, uh, say, spending our time in this way? Well, the um, the aim of Buddhist practice is uh, is very very simple um, and uh, deceptively simple in many respects. Uh, even though in Buddhist tradition, Buddhist artwork and um, philosophies can sometimes seem extremely complicated, and you look at all the different kinds of Tibetan, Chinese, uh, uh, Southeast Asian Buddhist iconography, and it can all be you know, fascinating and uh, and intriguing, uh, stimulating, different, uh, thousands of different Buddhist books, uh, treatises written over the ages. But uh, what it all boils down to is something extraordinarily simple. And um, as they say in some Buddhist traditions, so simple it's almost impossible to see, so, so close everyone misses it, uh, so obvious that uh, uh, no one ever sees it. So uh, someone called me um, a day or two ago and asked if this uh, day long was still happening. Actually, a few people have called us <laughs> and uh, and asked, "Is there a theme for the day?" And I said, "Oh no, nothing special." Uh, some of these days have themes, particular themes; others have none. And so then, as the words came out of my mouth, I thought, "Well, maybe that's a good, a good theme for the day. Uh, nothing special." Um, because that is a In a way, this in that that simple um, phrase, it captures uh, uh, the essence of, of both the problem and the solution. And part of the problem that we find in our life is that, we're, that our conditioning is always to make us interested in the special and drawn towards something something new, something different, something unique, something exciting. See. How many hundreds of people are up the hill um, playing April Fools with Wes Niska and Nina Wise, you know, painting their faces and and having lots of lots of fun? <laughs> <laughs> so I was thinking of also it crossed my mind to to to, um, to start a tradition of the April Wise Ones Day. <laughs> this is like like Berkeley's um, Native Peoples Day uh, on uh, instead of Columbus Day. Berkeley has a Native Peoples Day. I thought we'd have an April. Uh, Theravada and April Wise Ones Day to counteract the April Fools. Not that foolishness is, doesn't have its place. I'm, I'm known to um, clown around myself occasionally. <laughs> but um, just in this respect, it's, uh, we can see this, this, the mind is drawn towards what's in- interesting, what's new, What's exciting? 
um, what's special. And uh, even in terms of Buddhist practice, you know, there's there's a, a, a the big sections. If you go into any bookstore in the Bay Area, um, the biggest sections are always the uh, uh, like the Tibetan Buddhism or Zen Buddhism. She's got really good aesthetics. They've got these wonderful aesthetic traditions, kind of color, colorful and dramatic and uh, phantasmagoric, or, or they have these wonderful sort of quizzical, uh, arti- you know, beautiful, um, elegant uh, qualities. But the Theravadan, sort of aslot, you know, the poor, the you know, the the poor sparrows, the the. Uh, the, uh, the the sparrows of the Buddhist world, the kind of undemonstrative. We, we even wear sparrow colours you know. <laughs> instead of maroon and gold, you know. dramatic black and white. You know. uh, the uh, the sparrow tradition. Um, but uh, the, one of the in Suzuki Roshi's um, immediately quoting a Zen book, of course. <laughs> in Suzuki Roshi's. Um, extraordinarily popular and wonderful little book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which is actually the first Buddhist book I ever read years ago. Um, uh, there's a little talk in there of his which is called Nothing Special, and um, which he outlines this principle. And uh, you know that, that the habit that we have of, of always uh, thinking that, that Dharma is something exotic and fascinating or enlightenment is something dramatic and amazing and, and unique and happens to other people or happens far off in the past. Um, the, the Dharma, the truth, is something so extraordinary, so amazing, so mind-blowing that it's totally different from anything we've ever seen or known before. And he points out that uh, it's, uh, that's exactly, having those ideas is exactly why we miss the, the Dharma, we miss the truth of things because we're so busy looking for that which is uh, special or uh, amazing that we overlook the um, the truth itself, which is absolutely nothing special. Like the air that we breathe, or the, the force of gravity. I mean, how many of us woke up this morning and thought, wow, gravity! <laughs> how amazing that my bo- this body has weight. What an incredible thing. I didn't. <laughs> I woke up and I thought, oh, 20 past three. (laughs) (laughs) And that's where the clocks turned back. (laughs) We had to take someone to the airport early this morning, so extra early. So So we don't think that. We don't think, wow, air, incredible. It doesn't occur to us. Or when we come into a, a, a space like this, we don't think, wow, look at this space. This room's got really interesting space in it. it does, the mind doesn't do that. It says, oh, look at the new statues they've got for sale, or, oh, you know, uh, look at the monks sitting up there, or the eye goes to the object, it goes to the special thing. It misses the space, it misses the, the um, unmanifest of the ordinary. So, um, in the Thai language, they have a very interesting way that they, they represent this in their own language. That uh, 
Thai culture was a, a built a lot around um, the influence of Buddhism, that, uh, that the, the Thai nation really came into being uh, in the presence of, of Buddha Dharma. So it really formed itself very much around Indian Buddhism. And uh, so many Thai uh, words uh, and ideas and ways of thinking are very Buddhist in nature. Like their national motto is, never mind. <laughs> or, no, actually, strictly translated, it means the national motto is, it isn't anything. My pen arai. It isn't anything. It's very profound. You know? And it's, uh, the mind is grabbing hold of something and making a fuss about it, but the answer is, my pen arai. Don't worry about it. It isn't anything. So uh, their word for ordinary is tamada. Tamada. And the word tamada is a, a slight corruption of the, the, the word in the Buddhist language of dhammata, which means of the nature of dharma or, uh, or, or, or natural or of the, uh, uh, that, that of the essence of dharma. So you have... Um, a, a single word representing both that which is completely normal, that which is ordinary, and yet that which is of um, the absolute reality. So that you have those two aspects mi- mirroring each other just in, in, in one word. It's both completely ordinary and, and absolutely um, significant at the same time. It's of ultimate significance. It's, it's the Dharma, it's the reality but it's also completely ordinary, tamada. It's ordinary, tamada. And the ordinary is not exciting, it's not interesting. So we overlook it. And so that, you know, it is a natural enough instinct for all of us because we feel like, well, my life, my mind, you know, this is um, pretty boring or pretty mundane or, or I can do better than this. I can find more interesting, more... more um, wise, more peaceful, more clear states of mind. I can find ways of being where I'm not riddled with anxiety and uh, concerns. I'm not, I'm not um, restless and confused, um, disturbed and upset. I can find ways of being that are different from that. And so we, we tend to think of, of um, say, getting beyond those states by um, you know, practicing meditation and um, say changing our ways of, of, of thinking and acting. And so that those we pick up maybe the methodologies of meditation practice or coming to a, a place like this with all sorts of um, uh, people wearing strange costumes or wrapped in blankets and, <laughs> and uh, you know, uh, walking around very quietly and slowly. Sometimes people think they're in a mental hospital when they come to a monastery. You know, everyone's sort of walking up and down very quietly, kind of wrapped in blankets, sort of ruminating, like sort of some kind of uh, obsessive compulsive department. So that the form of uh, of the spiritual practice can seem kind of unusual, or special, or different. But it's really helpful to, to and, and, and most important, to, to see that the, uh, the essence of it is something very, very ordinary. It's not special at all. That what we're aiming to do is really to um, 
say, to know the uh, the nature of our own mind, our own being. To know, if you like, the the space of our own heart, the space of our own our own mind. To to be become aware of that. To realize that um, that quality within us, which is peaceful, which is spacious, which is clear, which is wise, and which is like air or gravity, like space. It's, it's, it's unremarkable. We don't notice it because the mind is always dodging from one thought to the next, one wave of emotion to the next, one thing that I have to do to the next. So we don't notice the space uh, in between those events, those images, those feelings. We're so drawn to the next special thing that we we miss that quality. So that um, in in Buddhism, even though we do have these particular practices of meditation, like focusing on the breath or or focusing the attention on the um, footsteps as we walk or um, different kinds of meditation exercises. These are, it's really uh, important to, to bear in mind that these are, these are simply like five-finger exercises that you do on a, on a piano. They're, they're special exercises, but they're not an end in themselves. You know, all that they're for is helping us to pay uh, close attention to life as we experience it moment to moment. And that as we experience, as we learn to pay close attention to life, we realize that um, that you know there's a um, a possibility in in uh, in each moment to wake up to that that inner truth. That it doesn't have to be something special that we're doing, something special that we're thinking. That it's just um, taking every moment whether we're, we're hearing or tasting or seeing or feeling, whether the body's moving or talking, whatever it might be, that there doesn't have to be any special thing going on. Just whatever the fabric of each moment is, this moment, just listening to this, feeling our, uh, our body being cool or warm, sitting here, being uh, alert or, or dull, being interested or bored, or uh, thinking about all the other things that you haven't... Uh, done that you were going to do today and you're suddenly remembering the phone calls that you had to make and the, the people and the shopping and the, so on. That, that's it. It's nothing special. But it's not like remembering the, un- the unfinished shopping is, is sort of is, uh, mundane and Dharma practice listening to Dharma talk or meditation is something sacred and special. When it comes right down to it, the thought of, oh my God, I forgot the bread, is, is as much a part of, the, of nature and as a, a pure aspect of, of Dharma as sitting with the mind focused uh, and clear, free from thought and anxiety. Um, radiating loving-kindness over the entire world. The, oh my God, I forgot the bread and, and the heart of abundant light. It, when you look at right, right at both of them, they're both just that much. It's just a, a moment. It's just the color, the pattern of a moment. It's just that. It's just a, a mental event 
taking shape, being what it is, disappearing, and, and it's held there within the space of, of our own awareness. It's nothing special. So this uh, principle of nothing special is, you know, when you pick that up and you have some kind of terrible crisis, you know, you, you come home and there's a note on the table saying, well, 30 years is enough, it's all over, bye-bye, have a good, you know, <laughs> have a nice life. Everything falls apart. My world's ended. You know, my beloved has left me. There's a note on the table. That's it. Or we we come home and find a letter saying, "Congratulations, the Nobel um, Awards Committee has decided to recognise your your achievements, <laughs> and uh, please come to, to Stockholm and receive your award." Me, a Nobel Prize? Impossible. Or whatever it might be. You know, these are somewhat absurd extremes. But, whatever it might be, whether it's painful or, or, or delightful, or mundane, then uh, the heart which picks it up and says, oh, it's nothing special. You know, my world falls apart. Oh, nothing special. I win the Nobel Prize. Nothing special. Another day at work. Showing up. Nine o'clock, work begins. Nothing special. So that it's, it, and it might seem like it's a kind of uh, putting everything in the liquidizer. Do you call them liquidizers here? Blender, that's right, thank you. <laughs> Still haven't quite got the language down. It's like putting everything in the blender and turning life into a total mush. But, it, it's, uh, but it's not. Uh, when, when one actually starts to apply this uh, to the flow of of experience within our own hearts when we do this, then we find that there's, a, there's a, a beauty that emerges. That even when something is incredibly good and there's, this, um, there's something that we absolutely want that uh, is, say, so delicious to us that we are, we are praised or somebody tells us that they love us or we win a big prize or whatever it must be, you know, might be that you want or you're, you get a, a letter from the credit card company saying, you know, no debt. <laughs> You're paid off. Ah, happiness. That which can pick it up and, and say, oh, you know, nothing special. That it, it's not as though there is, um, say, a, a, a loss of the sweetness of that success. But the heart holds in, in a completely different way. We're not carried away by it. We're not drunk on it. We're not lost in it. Similarly, when things really fall apart, when there's the, the note on the table or, the, or you get fired from your job or the credit card company says, um, well, we've reviewed our records and we realize that actually there's another $12,348.62 that you owe us this month. <laughs> Please remit immediately or the bailiffs will be around. They, ah, and so when that, you know, immediately something like that happens, we pick it up and, and get anxious and frightened and angry, resentful. But we, we don't have to do that. We can pick it up and say, oh, good fortune, bad fortune. It's the way it goes. And see, it, there's nothing special. So this is a, a, 
a way of uh, attuning the heart to the way things are, attuning the heart to Dharma. That yeah, things get bad, things get good, things get bad. Things uh, uh, sometimes there's success, sometimes there's there's failure. Sometimes there's praise, sometimes there's criticism. Sometimes things come together. Sometimes it all falls apart. And we begin to realize that the problems come when we make it all personal. Like when there's a success or when we're praised. It's like, oh, you know, I got it right. I succeeded. I'm beautiful. I'm clever. I, I won. I got it. I. Moi. <laughs> the great moi. Did it. And so then that's, that's the problem is the, the great moi. And then when it all falls apart, or when it's all just mundane, then again the problem is, it's my life has fallen apart. This is a terrible thing has happened to me. Why me? It's unfair. How could this happen to me? How could they fire me? How could, they, you know, how could my bank <laughs> crash? <laughs> how could my absolutely safe investments turn into something you lie in the bottom of the birdcage with? My share certificates. <laughs> they got all these big numbers on them. And now you just put them in the bottom of the birdcage. They're worth nothing. And that, the feeling of unfairness, you know, the, the kind of crash that happens in our own heart, that is also is tied up with a sense of I and me, we take it personally. And that when that, that personalizing element is is we let that dissolve then we're able to live with this heart which recognizes it's nothing special it's ordinary but but in the same way uh, it's difficult to convey but like uh, was represented in the thai word tamada both it's nothing special but yet it's it's uh, it's also the pure experience of dharma so therefore it's in its own way absolutely special it's, it's of absolute significance. So that there's a... It's like letting go of that um, small view. The heart opens to the amazing and wonderfulness of, of everything, of every moment. The, the extraordinariness of, uh, of every moment. Like waking up in the morning and or even now thinking, yeah, gravity, that's amazing. Why does gravity happen? How does that do that? Is this earth is pulling my body to it and this body can feel that attraction of one lump to another? How extraordinary. There's this big lump we call earth and there's other little lump we call me. And then there's these nerves that can, that can feel the two being pulled together. What an amazing thing. We just uh, finished our three-month-long retreat at our monastery, Abhayagiri Monastery. So the, the three of us here, um, Tan Achalo and Anagarika Scott, uh, this is part of the community. So we're just out. <laughs> First day out after 90 days in the hole. So. And uh, so one of the insights that, that kind of came to mind, or since not really insights, I guess, but something that I started noticing it was a kind of what also drew me to, to maybe building today around this was this is a 
what I began to notice was that um, even on the and very very subtle and, and, and ordinary levels, I kept getting this feeling. I could I could see how my mind would make everything into my problem. You know, you see a newspaper clipping about uh, the Oscars. Somebody somebody sends a newspaper, and you look at the you look and he's going to read through the newspapers, and then you see Julia Roberts never got a, never got an Oscar. Then it's like, is Julia Roberts going to get the Oscar? for Best Actress this year. And suddenly it's my problem whether Julia Roberts gets the Oscar for Best Actress. We read an article about um, uh, in the National Geographic about Mallory and Irving who were climbing Everest in the 1930s and were lost. They died on Everest. And the question was, did they ever really make it to the top? It's really intriguing how this happens. So you, you, you know, these guys, like you know, over sixty years ago, these two sort of eccentric Englishmen climbing up Mount Everest and uh, totally ill-equipped. Like Mallory was wearing a, a couple of jumpers that his mother had knitted <laughs> and a good tweed jacket. <laughs> <laughs> Amongst the luggage they carried with them was twenty thousand cigarettes. And dinner jackets. They slept all the way out Everest with them. Very English. And then uh, the, the last report was they were seen about 800 feet from the summit. The other people in the party saw them. And, they, and then they were, they were obscured by cloud. And so the question for all these years was, was did Mallory and Irving actually make it to the top? And, so, and then a, a year or two ago, they found uh, an, an expedition found his bo- Mallory's body. And of course, being English, he had a name tag in the back of his shirt. You know, good English boarding school practice. His mother had sewn his name tags in. so <laughs> Had Mallory written in, labelled, you know, so they knew who the body was. <laughs> and so, so you just read this article in the National Geographic, and it's like suddenly it's my problem whether Mallory and Irving actually made it to the top of Everest or not. In, in, Suddenly, I'm anxious. Did they make it? Oh, I hope they made it. Oh, maybe they didn't. <laughs> and it's like, well, where does that come from? I mean, these guys died nearly 70 years ago, you know. And, and if they made it, so what? If they didn't make it, so what? Really? But yet, the mind can pick up anything. You know, Julia Roberts or Mallory and Irving or whoever, or whatever. The running up to a traffic light, you know. The traffic light's green. It's like, am I going to make it? Well, it's still green. Oh, please, God, let me. Let me make it. Don't let me have to stop, dear Lord. Why? I mean, what, what's the problem? Okay, the car's got brakes. You're not going to die. You know, it's just stop and then start again. You know, it's doable. But yet, it's like suddenly it's my, my problem if I have to stop. I, you know, it's like a big issue. And I began to notice, sort of, just everywhere, there was this feeling of like the mind would just pick up these different aspects of, of the world around me. You know, where, whether the woodpeckers were getting enough acorns or <laughs> the lizards, you know, this lizard's lost its tail, oh dear, you know, if it gets caught again, whoa, yeah. <laughs> better grow another tail again quick, otherwise, you know, you'll be in trouble next time. It's my problem whether the lizard gets eaten. You know, so how how ubiquitous that is that we pick up you know the mind picks up just 
you know, 10,000 aspects of the natural world around us, an, an internal world, all the things that, that populate our minds, our, our relationships, our families, our friends, our work, our past, our future. And how much of it becomes my problem? It's like my issue, what am I going to do about this? Or, and and we, if we really look, only like a, you know, 3% actually might involve some sort of personal decision of ours. We might actually be able to do something about 97%. It's completely out of our hands. But the habit of the mind is still to pick it up, identify with it, make it into my issue, my problem. We, build, we, we create a, a, um, a tension around it. So I find myself developing this uh, internal mantra of, uh, it's not my problem. And uh, so a lot of it, you know, it's just spraying out over ex- you know, external conditions or things that had no relationship to, to my own life at all. But then it starts to get really interesting when it is things that you would think of as like your own thoughts or your feelings or your body or your, your personality. That you begin to see that okay, whether Julia Roberts gets the Oscar or not is really not my problem. But my health or my thoughts or my emotions, they, they, they have a bit more kind of clout. But are they, are they really my problem too? And you begin to see that it actually transfers into things that you, you habitually, very apparently legally call your problems. Like if I look in the, in the mirror... Uh, in the, the monastery, in the, in the bathroom in the monastery, you kind of walk in the door and there's the, there's the mirror. And you see kind of more wrinkles appearing day by day. <laughs> Being in that period of my life where they multiply. It's like, well, is that my problem, that, that the, the wrinkles multiply? Or that, you know, random memories or ideas, emotions, come up in the mind or kind of uncontrolled... Uh, surges of, of, of thinking. Is that really my problem? Or can that just be held in the same way? And, you know, in a way, just like sort of saying everything is nothing special can appear like you're putting everything in the blender and just sort of mushing life into an indistinct mess. Um, that's, you know, that's not really what's happening. Similarly, when we say it's not my problem, it's not kind of abdicating our responsibilities. But it's like um, deposing the tyrant is more the model. The, the, uh, the tyrant that is, is saying, you know, this is your problem and you, it's your responsibility to be worrying about it. And don't you forget it. <laughs> but um, we, uh, we're tyr- the mind is tyrannized by this identification habit. And that... Um, when we, uh, when we look and we say, start to train ourselves to, um, to see it's not my problem. You know, we can say a certain pattern of thought is not beautiful. We can say a certain uh, a pattern of, of behavior or uh, something that we did was not, was not skillful, wasn't, wasn't kind, wasn't beautiful. Um, but there's, again, there's a difference between that saying, well, that wasn't a very beautiful thing to say, or that could have been done differently. There's a difference between that and saying, that's my problem. That's, that's you know, I'm corrupt because of that, or I'm stupid, or I'm a bad person because of that. 
It's like, no, that was a stupid thing to do. I'm not a bad person. I'm not kind of intrinsically rotten. But that was a stupid thing to have done. <laughs> do you see the difference? They're very, very different. So you can see it's just like, that was a left turn. You should have taken a right. I needed to go right. So, you know, am I a bad person because I took a left instead of a right? No, it's just you took a wrong turn, that's all. No blame. So that we hold it in a, in a very, very different way. So it's not denying that, yeah, left would have been the correct way to go instead of right, uh, if you want to get to that particular destination. But the, the, so the recognition of, of, of beautiful and not beautiful, of skillful and unskillful can be made, but we can do that without making kind of person, we, can, we can do it without making it personal, without identifying with it, without making it my problem. And uh, it, it's amazing. I find it amazing. As soon as I would reflect in that way, that um, you know, it's not my problem, instantly the world would get bigger. Was, uh, suddenly there was more space in the room. I was like, there was a, like a uh, freshness in the air. There was a bit more of light in the, in the picture. Oh. Ah. There's this relaxation of the heart. Ah. And, and that, in that moment of relaxation, then everything's all right. And that, that everything's all rightness is really, that's the goal of Buddhist practice. This extraordinarily simple uh, experience of the orderliness of, of life. It doesn't mean that we didn't say something stupid, or that what we did you know, wasn't really hurtful to that person. Yeah, you said something and it hurt them. Fine, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, but it's also it's like a letting go of that and not carrying that around. It's like a, a capacity to learn from that and not be burdened by it. So that, that's why uh, the Dharma is nothing special. The experience of the Dharma, when the heart awakens to the Dharma, we call this uh, Nibbana or Nirvana. That peace of the heart, the peacefulness of the heart, the natural peace of the heart, when the heart awakens to and recognizes the, the perfect orderliness of life doesn't mean to say that everything is where you want it, but it's, everything is exactly where it is. <laughs> it might offend our choices or our preferences, but it is exactly where it, where it is. So that uh, sometimes you see these uh, Buddha images that with the Buddha in the... I haven't got any of them here, but... Uh, you sometimes see the Buddha with a with a hand in a, what's called a teaching mudra, and the, the right hand is is held up like this, and he's got the thumb at the first finger joint of the index finger, just like that. So that uh, it's just kind of so it looks like that, and so that uh, Ajahn Chah used to say there was a Buddha image like that at, at, at Ajahn Chah's monastery, and he'd say this is like. The Buddha is saying it's just this much. It's just this much. It's not much. Just one finger joint compared to the rest of the body. It's like, you know, what we need to know 
the teaching is, is, is not very much. It's just a little bit. It's just a small thing. It's, it's, it's not very much. Uh, but it's, uh, it's the, it's, it makes all the difference. It's that, that little piece makes all the difference. So that in, in the, the meditation practice during today, you know, I'll give some guidance and we'll have these hours together today, is to bear this, this theme in mind that it, it's, even though our minds and our lives and everything might seem extraordinarily complicated and, and multifarious and multifaceted, that you know, the, the practice and the result of the practice is really, it's, it's, just, it's just a little thing. It's just this much. It's just this tiny element. That, uh, but it's a tiny thing that makes all the difference. It's just like a, a, a tiny shift of, of view. So like seeing life internally and externally free from that personalizing habit. It's not my problem. It's not your problem either. There was a, I was talking about this at the monastery the other day, and um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with um, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Does that make it make it over here? This is a, a, a one of these classically weird, low-budget English um, satirical, not really satirical, kind of slightly wacky, Monty Python-esque um, uh, radio shows. Uh, by a fellow called Douglas Adams, and, and in this this uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, he had an extraordinary number of, of weird creations, um, uh, in a sort of vaguely um, science fictional mode. And one of them was uh, I thought was a, a rather uh, brilliant was what he called an SEP field. And the SEP field is, SEP stands for someone else's problem, <laughs> and so it's rather like. Um, to use a case in point, so this bell ringer, this has been in use here at Spirit Rock for about 10 years. It used to have a scruffy piece of, of rubber that was on it, that was worn out. But it was always someone else's problem to replace it. So... Years and years and years went by, and everyone had to sort of, sort of find a patch on it that you could actually sort of find a thick bit of rubber where it wasn't kind of frayed or broken or doubled over, and you could actually sort of hit the bell in a good way. But it was someone else's problem to fix the bell ringer. It was never my, my thing I had to do. So um, for years and years and years, it never got fixed. Even though I personally put in a few appeals for it to get fixed, <laughs> it never got done because it was, it was always somebody else's problem. And so finally, when I was uh, about to leave the Spirit Rock board as my final appeal, my last hurrah on the board of directors at Spirit Rock was say, please, one final project for Spirit Rock. Can we please put a new cover on the bell ringer? And they did, <laughs> finally. So someone else's, the SEP field is where um, you put an SEP field around something and it makes it invisible. So the example in the story was that they land their spaceship on the cricket ground in the middle of an international cricket match in, in London at Lord's Cricket Ground. And they put an SCP field around it so that um, no one can see it because everyone assumes it's someone that the fact this spaceship has landed in the middle of the cricket match, it must, it's someone else's problem, therefore it becomes 
invisible. So I'm sure in every, uh, every one of your houses or apartments, there are SEP fields around <laughs> various things. That pot plant that hasn't been, uh, hasn't been repotted, that, that cobweb up in the corner, that pile of, of books that were going to go to the, uh, uh, the goodwill at some point, we're surrounded by SEP fields. And so that um, the, uh, it's a kind of, the, it's a sort of mutation of the SEP field. Is that, um, it's like the way the mind picks it up and says, this is my problem. It makes, it's the kind of, rev- the, 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 the uh, reverse of the SEP field. It's like it's that which goes out and makes everything my problem and uh, takes hold of it and claims it. So... So, um, we can, um, people like to stretch your legs for a moment and then we'll have our first, uh, first sitting for the day, just, just for a, a minute, and, uh, make ourselves comfy. Angelica, good to see you. Yes, yes, I've been wondering about you. Not daily, but. Idle, idle, idle. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. Do you want to open a window? Stuffy now. 
letting the eyes gently close and turning the attention inwardly. Just for a few moments, feeling the presence of the body. Not trying to do anything with it, just just sensing what is here. The feelings in your face, your hands, your arms and legs. The chest. Just feeling the body, just sensing its presence. attention to the spine. Letting the body straighten, so the holding the spine, letting it grow, stretch into an upright, firm posture. Not to be tense, but holding the body with energy, alertness. Then with the spine as the central pillar, like the trunk of a a great tree, letting the rest of your body relax around that. Starting in the in the face, the forehead, letting a wave of relaxation flow through the body, 
softening the muscles of the face, your eyes, around the mouth. A wave of calm and softening flowing down to the body, the neck and shoulders, and your arms to your hands. It's letting them be free of tension, soft, empty. softening the, the muscles of the chest and the stomach. Letting the chest open, letting the stomach spread forwards losing their tension, tightness. Like a wave of, of soft, warm light flowing through the body, and down through the hip joints, to the thighs. all the way down our legs to our feet. Letting the body be at ease, relaxed. Alive.
even though he may have been practicing meditation for 20 years. Isn't it amazing how we just remember to establish the simple basis of calm within the body. Calm conjoined with energy. It creates the the basis, the foundation for calm, peacefulness of mind. Something worth doing every time. Every time we sit down to meditate, to clarify the mind, to focus. If the body is tense and agitated or heavy and dull, Inevitably, that affects the mind. So if we want the mind to be alert and bright, peaceful, we establish the the body in a matching way to support, to encourage those same qualities of mind. as the mind drifts and wanders as is its habit we hear sounds random thoughts arise feelings, perceptions becomes distracted pulled in different directions then we notice instantaneously tension comes into the body The face bunches up, the stomach tightens. The shoulders start rising. So to help us keep alert to the habit of distraction and to to work against that, to help break that habit, we use the simple ways of focusing, clarifying the mind. Again, it's nothing special. Just using the the natural rhythm of our own breathing. Nothing we have to create or conjure up, remember. It's here with us all the time. It's using that natural rhythm. The air flowing in, flowing out of the body. Placing that at the center of our attention. as if at the heart of a mandala place the feeling, the rhythm of the breath right there.
Then when we find that we wandered and drifted off to some periphery, gone out to some corner of the mandala, we let go, release that. That sound, that feeling, that memory, that thought. Let yourself come back to the center. doesn't matter how many times we wander off. How far we go, the center is always there. We're setting this intention. Draw the mind to the the feeling of the breath, picking it up quite consciously, placing it at the center. Feeling that simple quality here within the space of the mind.
whatever it is that the mind picks up, just patiently let go of it. Whether it's important or unimportant, interesting, boring, sacred, profane, whatever it might be. As soon as we recognize that the heart has grabbed hold of something, picked it up and run with it, let go. Let the out-breath carry it away. Breathe it out. Release it. And with the in-breath, just, we just begin again. No matter how many times we lose it, how far we wander, as soon as we let go, here it is, the present, the breath, the feelings of this moment. Perfect, simple, completely open. Every time.
whatever the mind picks up and follows. We just reflect on it as nothing special, not worthy of chasing, pursuing. We can leave it aside, let go of it. And as we let go and come back to the present, the attention back of the center, just noticing how that feels, the contrast between the mind in the the state of pursuit, chasing, following, grasping, and the mind in the state of uh, presence, openness, not grasping, not chasing after. beginning to be aware of the contrast between these two. Grasping and not grasping. Pursuing and and stable. Still. And keep inclining the the mind towards that stillness, staying with that as much as we can, allowing the heart to rest in that, to know that. Feeling the breath moving within that stillness. The pattern of the breath, it's feeling taking shape here within this stillness. Even if the mind wanders away a thousand times, the presence of this moment never wears out. always possible to return to this. The Dhamma never gives up on us. It's always here at the center. The very environment in which experience is taking place. So we come back. Open up to that presence, that stillness. Going back to the center.
every so often it helps to check back and see what the body is doing. We're working with concentration in this way for some time, we can miss any changes that have happened in our posture, the way we're holding the body. Does tension come back into the face, the muscles around your eyes, the stomach? Let's take a moment every so often to refer to the body, re-establish a quality of calmness, softness, relaxation in the body. So we're working with these elements together. The body, the mind, the breath. Well, steering us towards a, a recognition of this capacity for inner stillness, spaciousness of heart. Our ability to be with the present be at peace, to know. We'll do some <coughs> walking meditation now. Um, so we have uh, plenty of uh, uh, space around this area uh, uh, to walk. Beautiful spring day. Um, for those of you who might not be familiar with walking meditation practice, this is um, really just a, like an extension of the sitting meditation that we've been doing. Um, but say instead of using the, the breathing as a reference point, we just use the, the feeling of the feet touching the ground, uh, the rhythm of the, of the feet as, they, uh, as we walk along. So to um, 
find yourself a stretch of ground about um, 25, 20-25 yards long, um, uh, often back between a, a couple of easy markers like a couple of trees or between a, you know, a, a rock and a bush or a plant or something, or between the different uh, points of the room. You can walk inside or outside as you choose. And then just having determined uh, uh, one pathway where you're going to walk, then uh, recognize that's a good enough place to walk. Try and find a place where you're not colliding with anyone else. Um, and uh, just say, determine uh, for the, the half hour that we'll, we'll do the walking, just to stay with that, that place. And then um, using the, the, the rhythm of the body walking as a, a, a contact point. Again, it's nothing special. It's just, it's, uh, it's uh, in a way, utterly pointless. You walk from A to B, and then from B to A, and then from A to B again. You know, it's kind of wonderfully uh, uh, goalless, meaningless activity. But um, that's part of its beauty. It's, it's utterly simple. It's nothing special. But the point is, can we be with just one ordinary, unremarkable footstep? Can we be with one ordinary, unremarkable moment? And that uh, as we... Uh, say, practice that quality of, of focusing, surrendering to the present, then we find that, uh, oh, the moment, the present is remarkable. It's like uh, when we're always wa- waiting for the next thing or we're looking towards some kind of goal, somehow the, the end of the path is the place where we're getting to and we kind of purposefully head towards the, you know, the end of, of the, the footpath and then we just turn around and go back again. So it's not a matter of, of getting anywhere but learning to uh, be present to, uh, to what is. So there's a, a way of um, beginning to recognize that, that urge, that habit in our, within our hearts of trying to get on to the next thing, always uh, moving towards a, a destination. And uh, relaxing that. Just saying, no, there's just, just this, this moment, this ordinary footstep, this ordinary feeling. And as the mind wanders and creates ideas and, and plans and drifts here and there, then uh, again, just each time, just, just uh, do your best to, to let go of that, come back to the to the body. If you find that your mind is really going you know, all over the place, then just stop where you are, just stand still for a moment and say, hey, wait a minute, you can reel it in. <laughs> reel it back in and come back from from Scotland or Peru or India or uh, Andronicos or wherever you might have gone to and uh, come back and to uh, wait till you've sort of reconvened with, with uh, where you are and then once the mind is composed again then just let the body start walking so that there's this um, uh, uh, an encouragement of uh, like surrendering to the present coming back to this this moment. Is that clear enough? Okay. So um, let's see. Would we like to be the bell ringer? Yeah. The just the at quarter past. Oh, and by the way, uh, we'll. Um, after this period, we'll have the uh, we'll have a, a short sitting afterwards, and then we'll have the 
the uh, lunchtime offering. So if you've bought um, food along, then just bring with, bring it with you at that time. If you have things that you wanted to to offer. <laughs> 